Today's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal on the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again out of, shall the all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow, bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, you give us a sign of mercy through a rainbow in the sky. You give us a sign of mercy through water and word. We pray that through these normal human words, your living word might be heard and that it might bring assurance, comfort, and life. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Noah story is one of the most familiar biblical stories, of course. Humanity was so tainted by wickedness and the earth was so full of violence that God, whose heart was so deeply grieved, regretted even creating us in the first place. So God decided to flood the earth to erase humanity altogether and start again. God recruited the upright Noah and his family and loaded them into a giant boat with representatives of every animal on earth and commissioned them to repopulate it this time with righteousness rather than bloodshed. It's a new beginning, and it's a new start. And it's a rather brutal way to solve a problem that's true. This text raises questions about the character of God, at least in this text. And these questions are completely valid, but let's put aside those questions for a moment and think about how this works, because it has a kind of logic to it, one that we deploy all the time. There was a great book a few years ago by author and journalist Andrew Scott called The Promise of Paradise, Utopian Communities in British Columbia. Has anybody read that book at all? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> there, Keith's got it. If you want to know more about it, see Keith outside, distanced. <laughs> um, 
So from Dukabor farmers to Finnish coal miners to Quakers and hippies, our province has been home to many experiments in living where people have left hopeless civilization behind to start afresh. Another example is pilgrims who arrived on the shore of America in the 17th century also came with the intention of building a city on the hill that wouldn't be marked by old oppressions and class structure, the old oppressions and class structures of the Europe that they left behind. The intention in each case was to pull a Noah, so to speak, to create a new community, to build a new righteous society untainted by the brokenness of their old ones. And it's a universal impulse, really, and with good reason. Not more often than not, we would rather pack up and start over again rather than dealing with the problem of human brokenness. Churches know a lot about this. I mean, there's this great joke where a guy shipwrecks on an island, and there's one other guy already living there, but there's two churches And the new guy asks the old guy why there's two churches, and the guy replies, that's the church I go to, and that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) I know, it's not that funny. It was funny to me. It's pretty good. (laughs) Christian churches like ours are known for splitting into ever smaller sects, the idea that we can start over with a fresh righteousness. And it's all over our society and the internet all across the social and political spectrum. We're all building these separate communities, arcs of purity, in the hopes of finally cleansing ourselves from the unrighteousness of our neighbors. It all follows the same logic and the same impulse to leave the bad behind and start over from scratch. The problem is, of course, is that it... uh, never actually works, right? At least not the way that we would hope. Soon these experiments start to develop their own problems. And this is one of the most fascinating things about the Noah story. And this is the the part of the story that that isn't well known, actually. After the flood recedes and the family disembarks from the floating zoo... We're told that Noah takes all the clean animals, those who are ritually acceptable, i.e. no pork or shellfish, kills them and burns them as a sacrifice. I mean, it's a bit of wonder on one hand because you think about all the animals that he has to sacrifice. It's a bit of a big wonder that Noah offers a sacrifice at all to begin with. Because biblically speaking, sacrifices are acts of gratitude on one hand, but also offered for the purpose of atonement on the other. Atonement meaning to mend the rift between God and humanity and human beings and each other caused by sin. You give up something important to make up for wrongdoing. And so Noah's supposed to be this new Adam presiding over a world cleansed from human depravity, and yet here he is acknowledging that very thing in himself and atoning for it. Which is to say that the flood doesn't actually work the way that it was supposed to. It may have blotted out a generation of sinners, but the original issue remains inside the survivor's 
themselves, Noah and his family. And Noah knows it. As soon as he gets off the ark, he sacrifices for atonement. And now God seems to know it too, because if it had worked, (laughs) we wouldn't have had the rest of the Bible, first of all. And we also wouldn't have the rest of the human story up until the present day. And I'm reminded of the late Russian writer and dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Say that ten times fast. Solzhenitsyn, who converted to Christianity while he was imprisoned in a Soviet prison camp for eight years after criticizing Joseph Stalin in a private letter. So he didn't even criticize him publicly. He just criticized Stalin in a private letter. So watch who you send your emails to, um, so to speak. And his experience of being isolated and punished as a threat to the state actually transformed his vision of human life. And he put one of his insights, one of his most famous insights is put like this. He says, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I mean, Solzhenitsyn, who probably saw human depravity at its absolute worst. And this is why utopian experiments tend to end up being less than utopian. It's why the great moral promise of communism turned to gulags and re-education camps. Why campaigns to stamp out terrorism are usually crushed under the weight of their own hypocrisy. And why starting out fresh rarely lives up to our expectations because the problem resides in us. No matter how righteous we are or how big or stable the ark we build is, how far we sail, no restart plan can wash away this aspect of human nature. It'll always crop up again if in a different guise. There is no one who is righteous, not even one, in the words of the apostle Paul. And that's why neither washing away, running away, imprisoning, or out and out putting an end to anyone ever actually solves the problem. Because the line separating good and evil runs through each and every one of our hearts. Noah can't start fresh because we can't start fresh. We can't escape it because it means we'd have to escape our own selves. We'd have to escape our own selves. So the flood doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. And you know, God knows this. The moment the smell of Noah's delicious giant sacrifice meets God's nostrils, God comes to the conclusion in God's own heart that the, quote, inclination of the human heart is evil from the beginning, end quote. It's one of these weird moments in the Bible where God tries to fix something and then says, well, I guess that didn't work out. And I suppose God could have just gone all the way at this point, started another flood, wiped out Noah and company too, but God seems to have this soft spot for humanity, right? 
God would rather have a sinful humanity than no humanity at all, it seems. So God makes this pledge to never cover the earth in the flood again and never try the reboot method out ever again. God says, I have hung my bow in the sky, rainbow, as a sign of the promise never to wipe out creation again. And you know, in the ancient world, rainbows were thought of as signs of divine wrath, believe it or not. I mean, you'd see one right after a flood, so you thought, oh man, this is not good, right? Like a bow and arrow to fling judgment on the earth, right? And it's even in the Bible in a few places too. But here, God has hung up the old cosmic crossbow forever as a remedy, aiming it away from the earth entirely. The rainbow says that rubbing us out and starting over again is simply no longer an option to solve the promise of sin, the dilemma of the human heart, if it ever was to begin with. Because the God of the Bible is fundamentally a God of mercy. In God's heart, humanity's worth saving, we're worth saving, warts and all. And I mean, it's a bit of a strange affirmation to make right now, right? Considering the mess of things. But it's the point of this passage in the, one of the overarching arching messages of the Bible. Humanity is worth saving. Not for conventional reasons, like creative talents, or on account of our intelligence, or our technological power, because most of those things have their shadow side too. I mean, it's incredible that we can have people tune in to church from all over the world, but the technology has also been made possible by increasing stress on the planet, right? Even in our capacity to do good, we can be limited and self-serving. Like Solzhenitsyn says, we are a mixed bag. But even so, God believes we're worth Saving. I mean, this month is Pride Month, and there's rainbows all over the place as a welcoming emblem of inclusion, and rightly so. And biblically, though, this image is even more inclusive, even more expansive. Here we have an emblem of divine mercy for all things, all creatures, great and small. Not just the people who have the right opinions, or the right ideas, or have done all the right things, or supported all the right causes, or have been on the right side of history, but it's for the just and the unjust alike, saints and sinners, people like you and me. The rainbow says we're worth saving, not on account of any merit on our own as a species, but we're worth saving because there's a love that burns hot at the heart of all things that says we are has decided we are. A love that is internally grieved, moved by our suffering and pain, rather than pissed off by our predicament. A love that is wounded by our woundedness. The kind of love that would be wounded for us would hang up his bow for good and take the arrows of the world on a cross rather than leaving us to sink in the deep, dark waters of our eternal self-made misery.
Humanity is worth saving. Humanity's worth saving, which means that you are worth saving too. In all of your faults, all of your failures to do right, to live up to what you ought to do and you ought to be, your inability to start all over again. In your victimhood and in your victimization, you with your heart problem and your neighbor with hers. Not on account of any merit of your own, but on account of Christ's merit. On account of the truth that there is a God, one whose very name means salvation, and whose very being is truth, beauty, and goodness. The rainbow promise is the final word for us all. It's for me, it's for you. our greatest enemies, and our best friends. And it's forever. It's forever. Brothers and sisters, the unfortunate thing is there's no starting again from square one. Take it from the Noah story. Take it from God. I guess, that we can't solve the human predicament by stamping out badness from the earth because we'd have to stamp out ourselves. We can't run and hide from it because we can't run or hide from our own hearts. And besides, it doesn't work. Fortunately, though, there's a heart bigger than our own, the heart of our Creator, God. One who has deemed us and deemed you and this beautiful earth worth saving since before the foundation of the world. It's a promise, one written in the sky after the rain. It's good news in what so often seems a bad news world. So may we be given the faith to believe it and the love to make it so. And for this, thanks be to God. Amen. The choir has put together a rockin' tune. Uh, God put a rainbow in the cloud. Of course, the choir recorded separately, and we'll be playing the, uh, playing the audio version of that. Uh, so uh, the offering will now be received. When God shot Noah in the grand
Just a boo.